When I was doing my PhD, I studied um, a, a missionary who worked in Australia, in Victoria in the 19th century. And part of it was I had to read a lot of um, letters that were um, you know, written to um, people who were either supporters of the mission or relatives of the mission or friends of the missionary, the missionary himself, the government, um, the church. And these letters would go backwards and forwards. And um, something really was clear to me as I was reading it, and that was that um, uh, these people had a real strong sense of their place in the history of, of the world in, in relation to what God was doing. They had a really strong connection um, to God's plan, and they saw themselves as playing a key role in something powerful that God was doing. And they really longed uh, for, God to, uh, for Jesus to return. Um, you know, you've got to remember, these were people who gave up everything, um, a lot of them, for, the, for mission, these missionaries. Like, they would leave their families and friends behind in Europe and in, in, in the UK. They'd go all over the world to all the different continents in the world, um, to different language groups, to places, the, the desert, you know, and they would pretty much spend the rest of their life there. But they would, would have this drive, and you could read it in these letters, um, of like thinking that you know God was doing something amazing. You know what was going on in the world in the middle of the 19th century that suddenly the gospel was suddenly going to the whole world, and they they strongly believed that Jesus was going to return at any moment. But when I think about myself, when I think about us here, most of my Christian friends, we don't have that same kind of drive. You know, we don't have this same kind of awareness, many, most of us, that we're part of a plan for God, for the world. We don't have this kind of fire so that, yeah, Jesus is going to come back, so I'm going to give up everything and go to the middle of the desert in Africa or something. And I wonder why. We might know the theology or the teaching if we're a Christian, and we've read this before in the Bible, we've heard it taught about, but we don't have that sort of connection to the idea that Jesus is going to return like people once had in the history of the church. It's interesting, in fact, for most Melburnians, uh, let's think about broader society, not just the church now, um, the, the people who do not believe in the claims of Christianity, the idea that Jesus is going to return is so ridiculous for them, it's what you call a defeater belief. A defeater belief is um, a belief that, um, it's in philosophy, that if, if you believe A, then B can't be true, right? So um, uh, for, for most Melburnians, A, the idea that Jesus is going to return, is so stupid, B, therefore Christianity is not true. And uh, it's, you know, it, it causes, these defeater beliefs, there's lots of them, um, cause people to not even entertain the idea that Christianity is real. And it's interesting, um, uh, if, you, if you were to go to another country, they would have a completely different set of defeater beliefs. So if you were to go to, you know, if you go to most Melburnians, um, a common defeater belief is um, all religions are the same. Therefore, Christianity can't be the one true religion. Therefore, I don't, I don't believe in Christianity. But say if you were to go to the Middle East, um, to, uh, I would say, a Muslim country, a, a defeater belief would not be issues to do with monotheism, it would be to do with um, American culture. So Americans and American Christians are hedonistic and consumeristic 
and you know, persecute developing countries and Muslims, therefore Christianity is not true. So defeated beliefs are very culturally um, contextual. Um, so if you're a skeptic and you're here today and you don't believe in Christianity, it's interesting for you to realise that actually the thing that the blockages that you have to, to being to believing are actually culturally driven. So anyway, we have this defeated belief, and you might think, oh, but it's all sort of philosophy and theology. It's not really something that most Melbourneians walk, walk around with. Actually, just yesterday, great timing for the sermon, I was walking down the end of my street, and uh, I was standing at the traffic lights on the corner of St George's Road in Scotchmore, which is where Peter Montes is. Anyway, on the traffic light, there was a sticker about this big, and it had a picture of a cathedral and the words, he's not coming, were written on the bottom. Now, people have made the effort of making that sticker and sticking on the traffic pole, you know. So people do walk around with this strong belief, Jesus is never going to return, Christianity is ridiculous. Most people believe in this idea of a uniformitarianism. It's this idea that the world will just keep going, it will just, the forces of the world of physics and biology will just carry itself out and time will just unfold. But nothing much will change. An asteroid will one day hit the Earth or the sun will fade out. But who in their right mind believed that there would be a singularity, a moment in time when Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, will return to judge the living and the dead, to establish his kingdom on Earth forever? Now, I actually think a lot of us, because we live in Melbourne, we're persuaded, as Christians, we're persuaded by these beliefs by the broader society. And that's why I think maybe for many of us, deep down, we're not entirely persuaded that Jesus is ever going to return, that the day of the Lord, as it says in the passage we've just read, will ever happen. I mean, it's been 2,000 years. Why not go another 2,000? Why not another 2 million? Why not another 2 billion? You know, I mean... We actually have a muddled view, I think, a lot of us in, in the West as Christians about this. Well, let's look at the passage, because they also had a muddled view about Jesus returning. 2,000 years ago, they were still confused. The passage that we read, the context is that there's a pagan society and uh, Greek society, the church in Thessalonica. They're a new church, they're young church plant, the people around them do not believe that Jesus is going to return from the dead. They have hard enough time believing that he rose from the dead in the first place. Uh, but that, the, the, the church had been taught by Paul in his three weeks of teaching, the whole of Christian theology, and a key part of that was the fact that Jesus is going to return one day to judge the living and the dead, to establish his kingdom and where Christians will go and live in eternity with him. Um, Paul says he'll come like a thief in the night, he said in his first letter. And the Apostle Peter was also well taught this, not to the Thessalonians, but they may have heard this teaching via various means. Um, Peter quoted Psalm 90 and said, you know, um, we don't know when it's going to happen because for God a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Um, this teaching was very much part of their belief system but they also had other teachers coming, um, false Christian teachers who were influencing them. 
and saying that Jesus had already returned, that it had already happened. And so they were confused. So in this letter, Paul goes back to this topic and gives them some more detail and he fleshes it all out for them. And in verse 3 he says, That day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Now, if you're new here and you're new to Christianity or you're hearing this, you'll think, whoa, that's a bit weird. And do you know what? Theologians over the years have said that's a bit weird too. One of the most famous theologians, Augustine, he said about this, I do not know what he is talking about. (laughs) So it's okay to feel confused (laughs) if Augustine did. It's clear from verse 5, Paul says, don't you remember that I taught you this? He'd already spent time teaching this. So this is why he doesn't actually flesh it out. He sort of drops these things, the rebellion and the man of lawlessness, and doesn't explain himself because he knows they've already taken their notes in the class, so to speak. Um, what is this rebellion idea? What, 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 do people, what do scholars and theologians think the rebellion is? What can we gather from piecing together information from the Bible? I need to mention this because, you know, when you come across these things in the Bible, you can't just skim over them. So let's just have a look at that. Elsewhere, um, and even in this passage, we think it's referring to this period in world history that will come when there'll be um, a wave of rejection of God. Um, and an increase in immorality. Um, uh, there'll be a, the activity of false prophets, religious people who call themselves Christians, perhaps, but are actually deceiving the church. Um, their, their, their goal is to push people away from faith in Jesus. Jude, for example, wrote in uh, Jude verse 17 and 18, he said, But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ were told. They said to you, In the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. This period of scoffers, you know, that will come. So this religious rebellion causes people to fail to believe in the gospel, which leads to salvation. They believe in a false gospel, um, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 11 in our passage. They worship a false god, he says in verse 4, and they're going to be condemned, it says in verse 12. So we do have some pieces of information to help us understand what this rebellion is that we're waiting for. Uh, You might also consider that the rebellion will be connected into politics. We don't know how. But at various times, in the book of Revelation and and other places, you know, it could be the case that it works at a national level. Um, But it's definitely spiritual. And who is it that is rebelling specifically? it's, it's probably most likely a general rebellion of people in general against God. Um, the Melbourne scholar Leon Morris, who's well known, he says, to sum it up, the rebellion of the creature against the creator. There will be a time in the future when that is just so intense. This includes those in the church who identify as Christians, they call themselves Christians, but their heart is not actually transformed. They're not really converted. Rather, according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, they've been persuaded by deceptive displays of power and signs and wonders in verse 9. That's about as much as I can give you about the rebellion. And what about this man of lawlessness? Verse 3. Again, piecing together information from the Bible, 
from, especially from the New Testament. This seems to be some kind of a man or a person, probably you know, uh, a great leader who emerges out of the rebellion, who's a representative of Satan. Um, it all sounds very Hollywood, doesn't it? Um, one scholar called him Satan's Superman. Um, uh, the Apostle John calls him the Antichrist. Uh, and Jesus himself calls this person, or maybe it's a series of people, false Christs. Um, Paul says he will try and show himself to be God, says in verse 4 in our passage, but that his destiny is ultimately destruction, verse 3. And look at verse 8 as well. Um, the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendour of his coming. So Jesus is going to defeat this person, whoever it is, however this person appears. But that's all to come in the future before Jesus returns um, to establish his kingdom for eternity. Verse 11 says something very um, puzzling. It says that, in fact, God will send a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. So there'll be people who actually are so caught up in their rebellion that God hands them over to this false truth and uh, they are not able to believe the truth at that point. This is, sounds very unlike God to do that, doesn't it? But in fact, no, there's, there's a theme in the Bible of, of God doing this, handing people over to their hardened hearts. Uh, uh, it's connected also to what Paul says in Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served created things rather than the creator. So all of this is yet to happen, all right? Um, now, I have heard another theologian, D.A. Carson, say, maybe, maybe, and you can only say maybe about this passage because of the nature of it, he's talking about a cycle of events, a cycle of rebellions and a cycle of men of lawlessness. You know, because in Paul's own time, you had the Roman Empire and the emperor, you had... You know, later on in history, you had other kind of uprisings and, and leaders. And in our own time, in World War II, you know, you could point to, you know, Hitler and the Nazis. Hitler wanted to establish a reign for a thousand years. He actually looks like a man of lawlessness. You might look now around at various figures. The danger is, of course, that we start pointing to the, the political figures we don't like and saying Barack Obama is the man of lawlessness, which I've heard. I mean, I like Barack Obama, but, you know, there are some people out there who don't. Or they've pointed to the Pope, if you don't like Catholics. Um, you know, some in, in history that has happened. And that's, that's not what we're supposed to be doing here. The point, really, that Paul's trying to say is, to this church in Thessalonica, who are worried and confused about what's going to happen, his, his big point, you have to be prepared to wait a long time. It might not happen this week or next month or in the next 1,000 years. Now, this idea of waiting for Jesus to return uh, is something that Jesus himself said. And uh, we had the, the story of the ten virgins read out to us by Tim, which, um, which uh, as Tim pointed out, sounds a bit strange when you're reading it if you're not in the cultural context. So I thought I'd update the story of the ten virgins to help us to kind of get into the story. So here we go. There were ten girls who were really excited because they were going to their very first wedding and they were all uh, relatives of the groom. So um, 
The groom had planned to pick them up in his limo and take them to the wedding reception venue. And uh, he, he was, you know, a very faithful cousin of these girls. Now, five of the girls were wise and the other five were foolish. And the bridegroom, groom, he was taking a really long time to get to there and pick them up in the limo. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. But at midnight, one of them suddenly got a text message saying, he's about to arrive in the limo. And so they all scrambled and got their things together, putting their makeup on, you know, all this thing. Um, five of them had charged their phones, but the other five hadn't charged their mobiles. And they'll say, can you lend me your charger so that I can charge my phone because I want to be able to take photos on Instagram at the wedding. And they'll say, no, get your own phones. Go down to the server. There's a BP down the road. And they're like, oh, okay. So they're running off to get their chargers. Meanwhile, the man of uh, the, the groom arrived and uh, picked up the five wise girls who charged their phones. They hopped in, he shut the door, and they drove off to the re- re- reception and they had a good time. <sighs> when, the five, when the five foolish cousin girls got back from the server with their charges, they cried out, That's so unfair! I feel totally chipped. And they sent a series of rude text messages to the groom. <laughs> to which he texted back, who are you? I don't even know who this number is. So here's the point of the parable, verse 13 of Matthew 25. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. The difference between the five wise girls and the five foolish girls is the five wise girls were ready when the time came. And Jesus is saying, the same is true for the day of the Lord. And this is what Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians 2. Have everything ready. As if he's about to pull up in the limo and take you to the wedding reception. But history has to unfold first in God's good timing, says Paul. So we need to be patient. See, as Christians in 2015, we have a problem because even before we get to talk about learning to wait, we have to learn to believe that Jesus is going to return in the first place. And we're driven by this endless pursuit of happiness and we're distracted by technology and by the good weather and we're thinking to ourselves, oh, I wonder what cafe and what beach I'm going to go to this afternoon and, you know, and going for bike rides and... Melbourne's supposed to be the best city to live in the world, apparently, according to the age, you know. So, you know, we we don't think about it. And not only that, we don't have the biblical frameworks for most of us. Like, So when we see the sticker on the traffic pole in St George's Road, he's not returning. For many of us, we don't even have the framework to be able to critique that thought as a Christian. So we're in grave danger of being like the five foolish girl cousins who didn't have their phones charged when Jesus returned. We were so distracted on Facebook that we didn't see the battery running flat on our phones, you know. We've been so distracted with life that we didn't realise that we were not living with any kind of readiness for Jesus to return. And he's going to ask us to give an account for our lives. So what are we going to say? Well, the thing is, while we don't get this right, and while we are falling into the trap of being like the foolish girls, Jesus has given us all that we need. And verse 13 to 15 tells us this. He says, 
He tells the Thessalonian Christians to be grateful for what Jesus has done for them. He says in verse 13, God has chosen you. He's called you through his gospel in verse 14. You're going to share in the glory of Jesus Christ in verse 14. So you should stand firm and have confidence in your faith. They can be ready, they can be patient because they have the knowledge of their salvation. They can sit there and go, I don't know when this is going to happen. It may not even happen. I might die first. But at least I know I've got, I've got my salvation. You're not left in the dark. We're not left in the dark. So practically, how do we live this out? How do we live as people who can be patient in the way that Paul and Jesus is saying? I actually think a lot of it's to do with practicing the rhythms of the Christian life. We need to be aware that as Christians living in a predominantly postmodern secular society that holds one of its beliefs that Jesus is never going to return and therefore Christianity is not true, that we need to realise there is a danger that we're going to buy this lie. But in verse 16 to 17, Paul says, don't be deceived, but be encouraged. Listen to verse 16. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good word and deed. So it doesn't matter what the time frame is. It doesn't matter how under pressure we feel to change our views. We should be encouraged by Jesus. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And Paul said, I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted him until that day. And he said, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Our Christian discipleship needs to have, as part of the training that we give to each other, this planning for the long haul of the Christian faith, this waiting that we have to do, waiting in faith. I was talking to a friend the other day who's a Christian and um, a lot of his friends have given up on faith and he said one of the reasons why he thinks he's stayed a Christian for the long haul is because of the rhythms of Christian life that he practices. So he commits himself to, to go to church on a Sunday morning, to um, you know, read his Bible, to pray. These are the basic, the basic rhythms of discipleship. And uh, in doing so, even when he doesn't feel like it, uh, he, he's, uh, his faith is reinforced and he's re-encouraged by salvation. If you want to stand firm and hold fast to the teachings passed on to you, if you want to be encouraged by Jesus Christ and God the Father, if you want your heart to sing in response to the grace of Jesus, then overcome your distractedness and your... Um, apathy maybe by committing to these basic rhythms um, Jesus has given them to, to you he's given you his word his, his access to him so you, through your prayer the community of saints who we are he's given this to you to help you to last the distance they're not religious habits just for the sake of earning brownie points into heaven but rather they're a form of encouragement You want to feel encouraged as you wait for Jesus, then pray. You want to feel hope as you wait perhaps your whole life for Jesus, then soak yourself in the Bible. 
You want to know the love of Jesus in your heart as you wait for him, surrounded by the cynicism of the inner north? Then come to church each Sunday morning. Arrive early. Pray. And uh, be thankful of what God has given you. Have a posture of joy and encourage each other. Enjoy the forgiveness of sins. Be encouraged by the gift of the Spirit. Have hope because of the church. And capture some of that fervour that the Christians from the 19th century had as they lived in eager expectation and patiently for Jesus to return. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you can um, help us to be encouraged when we're distracted, when we're deceived, when we're persuaded by false teaching. Please help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and to encourage each other as we wait patiently for you. Amen.